Hi, everyone. My name is Jeff Greenberg. I'm a librarian here at the LRC at Maine West High School. My reading interests include biographies, music biographies, uh, and autobiographies more specifically, historical fiction, cookbooks, travel books, travel logs, and um, a whole lot of realistic fiction, which I have been introduced to around here at the LRC. Uh, the book I have picked for my reading is by Tennessee Coates, and it's called Between the World and Me. I will read from the flap to give you a little intro to Between the World and Me. In a profound work that pivots from the biggest questions about American history and ideals to the most intimate concerns of a father or a son, Tennessee Coates offers a powerful new framework for understanding our nation's history and current crisis. Americans have built an empire on this idea of race, a falsehood that damages us all but falls most heavily on the bodies of black women and men, bodies exploited through slavery and segregation and, today, threatened, locked up, and murdered out of all proportion. Son, last Sunday the host of a popular news show asked me what it meant to lose my body. The host was broadcasting from Washington, D.C., and I was seated in a remote studio on the far west side of Manhattan. A satellite closed the miles between us, but no machinery could close the gap between her world and the world for which I had been summoned to speak. When the host asked me about my body, her face faded from the screen and was replaced by a scroll of words written by me earlier that week. The host read these words for the audience, and when she finished, she turned to the subject of my body, although she did not mention it specifically. But by now I am accustomed to intelligent people asking about the condition of my body without realizing the nature of their request. Specifically, the host wished to know why I felt that white America's progress, or rather the progress of those Americans who believe that they are white, was built on looting and violence. Hearing this, I felt an old and indistinct sadness well up in me. The answer to this question is the record of the believers themselves. The answer is American history. There is nothing extreme in this statement. Americans defy democracy in a way that allows for a dim awareness that they have, from time to time, stood in defiance of their God. But democracy is a forgiving God, and America's heresies, torture, theft, enslavement are so common among individuals and nations that none can declare themselves immune. In fact, Americans in a real sense have never betrayed their God. When Abraham Lincoln declared in 1863 that the Battle of Gettysburg must ensure, quote, that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth, end quote, he was not merely being aspirational. At the onset of the Civil War, the United States of America had one of the highest rates of suffrage in the world. The question is not whether Lincoln truly meant government of the people, but what our country has throughout its history taken the political term people to actually mean. In 1863, it did not mean your mother or your grandmother, and it did not mean you or me. Thus, America's problem is not its betrayal of government of the people, but the means by which the people acquired their names. This leads us 
to another equally important ideal, one that Americans implicitly accept, but to which they make no conscious claim. Americans believe in the reality of race as a defined, indebutable feature of the natural world. Racism, the need to ascribe bone-deep features to people and then humiliate, reduce, and destroy them, inevitably follows from this inalterable condition. In this way, racism is rendered as the innocent daughter of Mother Nature, and one is left to deplore the middle passage or the trail of tears the way one deplores an earthquake or tornado or any other phenomenon that can be cast as beyond the handiwork of men. But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy or physiognomy so much as one of hierarchy. Difference in hue and hair is old, but the belief in the permanence of hue and hair, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society and that they signify deeper attributes are indelible. This is the new idea at the heart of these people who have been brought up hopelessly, tragically, deceitfully to believe that they are white. These new people are, like us, a modern invention, but unlike us, their new name has no real meaning divorced from the machinery of criminal power. The new people were something else before they were white, Catholic, Corsican, Welsh, Mennonite, Jewish, and if all our national hopes have any fulfillment, that they will have to be something else again. Perhaps they will truly become American and create a nobler basis for their myths. I cannot call it. As for now, it must be said that the process of washing these disparate tribes white, the elevation of the belief in being white, was not achieved through wine tastings and ice cream socials, but rather through the pillaging of life, liberty, labor, and land, through the flaying of backs, the chaining of limbs, the strangling of dissidents, the destruction of families, the rape of mothers, the sale of children, and various other acts meant first and foremost to deny you and me the right to secure and govern our own bodies. The new people are not original in this. Perhaps there has been, at some point in history, some great power whose elevation was exempt from the violent exploitation of other human bodies. If there had been, I have yet to discover it. But this banality of violence can never excuse America, because America makes no claim to the banal. America believes itself exceptional, the greatest and noblest nation ever to exist, a lone champion standing between the white city of democracy and the terrorists, despots, barbarians, and other enemies of civilization. One cannot at once claim to be superhuman and then plead mortal error. I propose to take our countrymen's claims of American exceptionalism seriously, which is to say, I propose subjecting our country to an exceptional moral standard. This is difficult because there exists, and all around us, an apparatus urging us to accept American intolerance at face value and not inquire too much. And it is so easy to look away, to live with the fruits of our history, and to ignore the great evil done in our names. But you and I have never truly had that luxury. I think you know. 
I write to you in your 15th year. I am writing you because this was the year you saw Eric Garner choked to death for selling cigarettes. Because you know now that Renisha McBride was shot for seeking help. That John Crawford was shot down for browsing in a department store. And you've seen men in uniform drive by and murder Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child whom they were oath-bound to protect. And you've seen men in the same uniforms pummel Marlene Pinnock, someone's grandmother, on the side of the road. And you know now, if you did not before, that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body. It does not matter if the destruction is the result of an unfortunate overreaction. It does not matter if it originates in a misunderstanding. It does not matter if the destruction springs from a foolish policy. Sell cigarettes without the proper authority and your body can be destroyed. Resent the people trying to entrap your body and it can be destroyed. Turn into a dark stairwell and your body can be destroyed. The destroyers will rarely be held accountable. Mostly, they will receive pensions and destruction is merely the superlative form of a dominion whose prerogatives include friskings, detainings, beatings, and humiliations. And all of this is common to black people, and all of this is old for black people. No one is held responsible.